Hello and welcome to This Creative Nomad. I'm Aoife Carey and this is a conversation I had with the amazingly talented Johnny Kim. We recorded this podcast back in October of this year and it's just taken a little bit of time to get it out there but I really hope you enjoy it. Johnny is just an inspirational person to talk to and to listen to. We are here to talk about you. Oh dear. Yes. No one's gonna be amazing. Uh, To talk about everything to do with you. So we have known each other since uh, 2015. Yeah, five years. That's gone by quick. It really has. It does feel like longer, I have to say. Yeah, I think so. I can't remember a time when you weren't in my life. (laughs) And I find this really funny about certain people. I kind of like I think back to Mark and I's wedding and then I'm I'm like, why wasn't Johnny there? Like, how rude. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's sweet. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so we met in 2015 in Macau at House of Dancing Water. Sure did. But I want to start before that. I want to start when you were a little Johnny Kim. Oh, dear. Yeah. Let's see. I kind of started my artistic moment, I suppose, when I started piano lessons, which sounds very cliche for a first-generation Vietnamese-American <laughs> to be studying a classical instrument. I'm surprised that they didn't double down with violin. <laughs> um, but it actually happened by by accident because, you know, I didn't grow up very wealthy by any means. We were, you know, lower middle class, I would say. Um, and so at the time, uh, my older sister had taken piano lessons and it was kind of uh, forced upon her as far as you know, the, the typical Asian mindset of having an extracurricular kind of activity that was um, enhancing to your life as far as, I would say, music and culture, but more so with, I would say, the mathematics behind music and that kind of discipline um, and structure. She hated it, of course, but I loved it. And so they took a chance and, and decided to spend some money and give me some lessons as well. But it happened at the same time that my older sister was going to stop piano lessons. So that's how it worked out. And what was kind of a chore for Carolyn became a new love affair for me. Um, it, it was one of those moments where I had to be pried off the piano just to go to bed. And at the time, I didn't realize what that meant as far as passion or something that I enjoyed so much that I just couldn't live without it. Um, But that's how I was. Um, I studied the Suzuki method, this Japanese method that kind of um, teaches based on um, how you hear things. Uh, And so you listen to these tapes um, where each uh, piece in the volume is played five times in a row. And even though you're, let's say, working on the just the first piece, you have to listen to the entire volume. So all dozen plus songs five times in a row. And then that whole tape you have to listen to at least two to three times a day. And it really trained your ear to kind of know exactly how things were supposed to sound. So you knew when you were going to make a mistake. And I learned that method prior to how to read music, essentially. Um, And what usually takes somebody a year to do one volume, I did three volumes in that same year. And so I progressed really quickly, found out that I had a knack for it, but also a love for it. And that was that was my first kind of introduction into performance art, I'd say. And how yeah. old were you? Let's see, let's see. I was, um, I was probably eight going on nine wow. when I started, yes. Yeah. Um, 
And I will never forget my first public performance that was not a structured piano recital, like for graduating that volume of Suzuki or going to other different things, um, was at the fifth grade talent show. And so I had played a piece from the volume, I think it was volume three, and it was a really fast piece. So there was a lot of dexterity involved and I just did what I knew, but didn't realize what the response was going to be like. And here I was standing up after the piece and seeing the entire auditorium stand up. And there was a standing ovation. And I didn't know how to react or how to feel because that wasn't part of the, the teaching per se, as far as what happens after you play. <laughs> um, so then I, I run down that aisle because I was happy but equally mortified because I didn't know what was going on and I see my mom in the back which come to think of it I'm like why was she in the back shouldn't she have been that proud mother in the front <laughs> um, and she was just beaming and I that was my first standing ovation but also my first performance and it's weird to think back at those times because I just didn't have any idea or true comprehension of what that was like and looking back at it now it's, it's quite beautiful you know alongside that you were doing gymnastics yes yeah, so well it's interesting how that started too because you know we grew up watching tv with what we could you know because i don't i think when i was younger we had the that tv where there's only 13 channels and if there was like any kind of uh, static interruption from the antennas that you just slap the tv on the side but we we did end up watching um the olympics the 92 Olympics on TV, um, I remember watching that um, and as, as, a, as a young child falling in love with Shannon Miller. And then, yeah, I kind of just, my sister and I were really interested in that. And I think towards the end of my third year of piano, I decided that I wanted to just stop. And it wasn't because I didn't enjoy it anymore. It's just because the teacher that I had, although great, I think she was out of her depth for what I was, what my ability was. And so I felt bored which is also weird to say as a 12-year-old that you're bored because you're you're stuck with this the same four rep song repertoire for the entire year to do all these different kind of festivals and competitions. Um, and so because I wasn't advancing as I as much as I wanted to instead of trying to find another teacher, my parents were like, "Well, you could just teach yourself." And that was the cheap route. And I didn't contest it by any means. I I was fine to just stop because I knew that I could just expand into other things. And at that time, I was slowly going into junior high school and I was actually hired as, as a young kid to be an accompanist for um, singers, d different classical musicians, you know, like violinists, flautists, all that stuff for them to compete in competitions and I would be the accompanist for them. So uh, accompanying people became a thing in junior high and I accompanied all the choirs in junior high school. So I found that kind of avenue. And so when I stopped piano lessons, as I found that avenue, I really pushed to do gymnastics and my sister and I really wanted to do it. So we, we started gymnastics late. I think I was about 13 or 14 and my sister was nine or 10. Um, and we did that, uh, which was exciting. But you know, I was late, I was skinny, tall, lanky, it was not to go to the Olympics, even though as much as I thought I could, it was unrealistic. And I knew that when I was a teenager, but I loved it so much. So I did end up having to coach gymnastics to be able to afford being on the competition team because my parents didn't want to spend the money on that because they thought it was 
clearly a waste of time and, and a hobby that meant nothing to your success in life. <laughs> um, so I had to coach my way and work reception uh, as well to kind of afford the tuition to compete. Um, and I did that from the age of 13 through 17. Yeah, so for wow. four years I did gymnastics. Um, yeah, I was a class four at the time that was what it was called, class four, which was the first level in men's gymnastics that was an optional level where you can create your own uh, structured uh, routines um, based on the code of points uh, and how to get high scores from that. Um, and in 1999, I was a class four state champion on floor exercise. So that was my, my proud little gymnastics moment, but there's nothing elite about that. But I still was obsessed with the sport, even now to this day as an adult, I think I follow it so much more than even Olympic athletes that have been in the sport before. Uh, it's because I just love it so much. I think it's such a great sport, yeah. So you were, through your high school years, you were accompanying other musicians and you were coaching gymnastics. Like you were hustling. As a teenager. As a teenager. And it's it's weird. Yeah. I think it was uh, for when I did um, in an interview with Theatre Art Life with Anna Robb, when we had to send in a little bit of a bio. And I didn't know how long, you know what it's like to send in a bio. You don't know how long or how short it should be because there's no actual um, listing of, of what they need. They just say bio, which is so generic. So I, I did a couple versions. And in thinking about what I did... You know, I was hired to be an accompanist for the community theater production of Pippin when I was 14. So I couldn't even drive yet. And here I was being driven to Miracosta College and playing with this five-piece band as the piano player for Pippin, the entire musical. I had the score and everything as a 14-year-old. So yeah, I did hustle, which is fun to think. And, and that's when I also developed an ear. And I think I used the Suzuki method to my advantage, but it came as a surprise. It's almost like I went through that in, entire method without actually knowing what it was doing for me. Yeah. Um, and I remember going into, um, I don't know if you had that in the UK, but we had this music store called um, Sam Goody. Yeah, no. So it's kind of like a FYE, kind of like a Virgin Records, kind of like a, all those kind of places that would sell CDs when it was all the rage and Discmans and all that stuff. But they had a, a sheet music section in the back. And at that time when I was hustling and kind of doing gymnastics and piano and just still in junior high school, getting way into to high school, I would go in there and look at the sheet music of pop songs on the radio and I would scan it, understand the key that it was in, the chord progressions, and just take a quick glance. Not that I had like this crazy memory, but I would have an understanding of it so I would go home and plunk it out myself. So I would save, you know, four or five dollars per song by just going there and reading it and then going home and trying it myself. And in, in a short amount of time, I realized that I had an ear for it to where I didn't even need to go to Sam Goody anymore. You know, that was back in the day when we had those boom boxes where you could like record the radio with your cassette tape and time it out so that once when the, the commercials or the adverts would come on, you would just press pause. And I, I listened to those songs and started to develop an ear so I could ear read these pieces. It allowed itself to expand into something else to where when I was 16, you know, more in the, the workforce, which is weird to say because in this day and age, I don't want my niece that's 16 to start to have to work when she has to work the rest of her life. But like I said, growing up in the family that I had, if I wanted anything, I needed to work for it. And so as a 16-year-old coaching gymnastics, but I also had a part-time job at The Gap, 
working stock in the back. But I also, one of my favorite jobs was at the same time, I was a, a piano player at a Chinese restaurant in Vista, California called Peking Wok. Which, you know, when you say that at first glance, it's, it's definitely a conversation piece because when, when people think Chinese restaurant, you know, there's a lot of different visions that people have. They, they look at a takeout place, they look at like a glorified Panda Express, or they can't just, they can't really imagine an authentic Chinese restaurant that's kind of upscale with a grand piano in the middle. But that's where I worked and it was gorgeous. Um, and the best part about that was, you know, at the time, the owners were Vietnamese Chinese immigrants. And so they spoke Vietnamese so that we had that common commonality, but we felt like family. And so I got paid $11 an hour and they did not tax my tips. So I would have this goldfish bowl at the grand piano and anything that I earned, she would just let me take. Um, and it was my favorite job because I practiced classical pieces there. I did everything that I ear read on the radio there. Anything that I heard from a movie soundtrack that I did by ear, I played there. And it was as much background music as I could possibly play. And then I, of course, bought sheet music of oldies because there's a lot of clientele that would come to these restaurants and ask me for, you know, older type of music that I didn't know as a child, teenager, uh, like Gershwin and some of these, you know, old pieces. So I would, I would learn these so I could have a, a mass appeal to a different demographic at a Chinese restaurant while people are having like dumplings and, and stuff. So, but I loved that because I would sit down for three and a half hour shift and I could take little breaks as much as I did, but as I wanted, but I would actually play the entire three and a half hours because I loved it. It was, it was like an escape for me to just emote um, and not think about school or life at home or my strict parents or anything like that. And that was my best gigging moment as a teenager. At that point, were you thinking that music would be a career for you? Yes. And I think the turning point was after I even graduated high school when I started college. Because even in high school, you know, I was in show choir for four years. So any, any younger generation listening, that's like glee. <laughs> um, we dance and sing. Um, but also the two years of my four years there, as a show choir, we were also a jazz choir. So we sang a lot of jazz pieces and that kind of uh, opened my eyes to a different genre that I wasn't really familiar with because I was so classically trained slash listening to pop music. So there was no in between. And then I also did theater. You know, I was in the drama department. I, I was in the musicals in my junior and senior year in high school. We went to um, uh, theater festivals um, I became a part of the International Thespian Society and we went to these competitions and it was super fun. So I had stage performance experience, but during that time, I still thought that because my skills lied in piano, like as, as far as the highest level of skill throughout all the things that I was currently doing, I thought it would be best to go that route. And so what I wanted to do was music piano performance. So yeah, I think... When, I, when gymnastics kind of came to a slow close, I picked up piano again, I found a teacher, and I worked with her extensively for almost, I would say, nine to ten months to work on a repertoire that would then be suitable to audition for music schools like Boston Conservatory, Eastman, NYU, Juilliard. Like, I was aiming big, even though I was so disengaged from that classical world for so long. Uh, and I didn't think I would be good enough, but I tried. And so 
in that process, the, the funny part is that I spent all the money paying for it. And by the time we finished, I had a repertoire and we were ready to send things out is when I started to feel in my gut that maybe music performance wasn't going to be my thing. I think there was a couple things to it. One facet was that I felt not good enough and I didn't have any self-worth, even though I had a lot of faith from my piano teacher and uh, she, she thought that I could be something. But two, I think the other facet to it was that I wasn't sure that that was the path that I was wanting to take in general. Because, you know, as everyone can relate to, when you're in high school, there is so much pressure of where you are going to go to school, what you're going to major in, and what your life is going to be planned out to, you know, look like. And I think that's a lot of pressure for a young teenager because how are you supposed to know what it is exactly that you want to do? And if you're lucky, you can, you can find that in your journey of being a teenager. Like my younger sister, she always wanted to be a nurse. She wanted to be in healthcare. She wanted to help people. She wanted to be that person that was a part of that kind of movement. And, and she went with it. And since I didn't know, I came into that same category of, okay, well, maybe I won't go to university and I'll just go to community college until I could figure it out. And it wasn't until I started community college is when I really realized that I did not want to be stuck behind a massive instrument. And piano specifically, it's not like the guitar or the violin. You are truly behind this massive instrument. And even though you can be the star of this you know, big concerto that you're playing with an orchestra or a philharmonic or a symphony behind you, you know, it's really rare to get to that point. And once when I realized that I didn't want to be stuck behind an instrument, but I wanted to be on stage and visible, is when I realized that I wanted to be a performer. But in saying that, what catapulted that was um, community college arts credits. You know, there was, I took pop vocal technique. I took, I wanted to take a language because I didn't do so hot in Spanish in high school. So I wanted to pick up a language as my arts uh, credit. But a friend of mine, Sarah, had really coerced me into taking dance. And she says, look, I saw you in show choir, you were in theater, you have the movement quality, you would really love this, I think. Slash, who cares about language? Like, do something fun. So she convinced me to sign up for jazz and ballet at the college. And that's what started it for me because I remember walking into that studio for the first time and ballet class back then, I don't know what it's like now, it started at 7.15 in the morning and I'm sure anyone that goes to a ballet school Oh, I can relate. It's early to be in like a dance belt and tights. But I walked into this massive studio that was the size of two of the houses that I, I grew up in, had a grand, not a grand, uh, upright piano in the corner. And immediately I was drawn to the instrument because that was what was familiar. And I saw it and I thought, oh, that's cool. Maybe I can get a job as an accompanist here. <laughs> that was my first thought. So here we are learning plies and tendus, and we're going through like the basic structure of bar, and I'm hearing these piano pieces, and I'm thinking, oh my god, I played that when I was 10. Oh, I played that when I was 12. But then as we continued, I started to really enjoy the beauty and the breadth of doing bar. Specifically, plies and tendus, and all the things in the beginning that were really slow. And I think that became my, my love affair of dance, and from that point on, music was secondary. It was always in my life, but I wanted to be in front and on stage. And then I became a professional dancer. So wow. it, it took a big turn. And to my parents' surprise, you know, after them being disappointed 
that I was wanting to do piano performance, then being thrilled that I wasn't going to do that anymore and that I was going to figure out my life, not thrilled that I was going to community college, but then thrilled that I was trying to find my way, but then not thrilled when I just said, I just decided I want to be a dancer. I mean, it was just an emotional roller coaster, and my parents, God bless them, I mean, they had such high expectations, so it was, it was a rough time in my life because everything that I wanted was viewed as nothing to them. It was, it was a waste of time. You weren't going to garner any money from this career. And th these are all sob stories that we've heard before, Asian or not. I think in the arts that tends to happen, but specifically then in an Asian household, it was just... Why aren't you going to be a doctor, be an engineer like your uncle? Maybe you could be a frickin' pharmacist at, at, at the minimum, you know? <laughs> it was like, no, I don't want to do that. And I think the, the cherry on top, going back to my high school years, is that I even took mechanical drafting to kind of understand how to um, draw and before learning AutoCAD and kind of going in that way of engineering. And I came out of that with an A minus. And so my mom was like, see, you're good at it. <laughs> but my thought was, okay, I'm good at it because I applied, but I don't want to do that for the rest of my life. I think this is boring. Yeah, I was going to say, were your grades in school good? Like, were your parents pleased with your, your grades? No. No, they were never pleased. And it's because I never really achieved the 4.0 in the American system, which is having all A's. I think I usually averaged around a 3.33 sometimes. And there was a, a couple semesters that was like 3.67. And the lowest one I had was 3.13. And that was not a good time in my life. Um, it was It was harsh. And to be frank, and maybe I can say this because my parents would never listen to podcasts like... They don't know what Facebook really is or whatever. Um, you know, that was a, a, a period of time in my life where they were so upset about my lack of focus in academia that they wanted me to understand what it was like in the real world. Because in the real wo world, in their eyes, they had established kind of careers back in Vietnam. But after the war, when they escaped and emigrated to America and just tried to learn English, first and foremost, those kind of job careers kind of went to the wayside and they were stuck in this blue collar system of just trying to survive. So me getting a 3.13 essentially for them, which makes sense, was kind of a slap in the face because they came to this country for opportunity and to bank on that through their children. And it was like I was taking for granted this free education to kind of have the American dream to be whatever it is that I wanted to be. But the problem is, is that I didn't want to be what they wanted me to be. Therefore, me not focusing in world history or in trigonometry was normal because I just was not interested. Could I do it? Yes, because I did algebra in junior high school. So I had already had a leg up before I even started high school. So by the time I was a senior in high school, which is 12th grade, I only had two true academic classes that I needed to take to fulfill my high school credits because I had done so much extra stuff prior because it was pushed and pushed and pushed as far as trying to be the best in academics and be in advanced placement and, and things like that. Um, so I only took English and economics in my senior year and all the other classes were dance, show choir, um, drama. So I did all the arts in my senior year and, and that's what it was like. So yeah, they, they were not pleased and 
there were a lot of rough moments because in teaching me to appreciate what it was like in the real life, they kicked me out. Now, it's hard to say if they actually kicked me out, but the thing is the words that they used and the things that they did were so harsh that I, I took it as a flag of, I think they want me to really leave. Like I had to disassemble my entire trampoline. I was told to not ever touch the piano or my dad would ax it up into wood pieces and throw it in the fire and that I needed to leave to understand what it was like. So I left. I was, I think, yeah, 15 or 16. Didn't drive yet. I went to my friend Sean's house and packed things into like a trash bag. And it, gosh, it's so weird to be in such a vulnerable state to talk about this. But, you know, I went there because I just felt that that's what, it was, what I was supposed to do. Like I left a hostile environment and they told me that I should leave, so I left. Um, and I thought, okay, this should be fine. Like, I don't know what I was thinking. And of course, after that first night, my mom found out through my younger sister because she knew where I was, called my friend Sean's house to try and talk to me. And so I, I entertained that idea. I got on the phone and she begged me to come home. And the thing is, I probably would have, but she said <laughs> she wanted me to come home because it looked bad on them that I was there as far as their parenting. And because of that, I was offended that that was the only reason why she wanted me to come home. So as a rebellious little teenager that at that time, I said, no, I'm going to stay here. And so I stayed there for about two weeks. And it's hard because I think my memory is very clear of my side. Her memory is very clear of her side and they're both different. But I do remember coming back and things kind of resuming back to normal, but as if nothing had ever happened. And it was, it's kind of a time of our lives that we don't talk about. And, and there was a moment where I did bring it up you know, in my adult life. And, you know, there's massive denial that that ever happened because that's not what was remembered on her side. But, you know, and I don't, I don't fault her. I don't blame her by any means. It's just a period of time that was really rough. You know, I think being a teenager is already rough enough in a high school. Trying to find your way and who you are is an ongoing process. So that's rough. And then having that kind of um, childhood where everything was so, the expectations were so high was also rough. So it was like a triple whammy. So of course I was stubborn and left and was defiant and, and all that stuff. So it was hard for them to accept that I wanted to be in arts. Yeah. And were your parents, like, were they part of a larger Vietnamese community where you were living or were they trying to integrate into an American community? Like, did they understand the culture that you were growing up in. Funny enough, there there was a Vietnamese community, but it wasn't, they didn't really expand to too many families. I don't know if it was a trust thing. I don't know if it's just because they wanted to keep their head down and continue to work and provide for us children and just have a life that was sustainable for the American dream. So there were Vietnamese families that I came across and kind of knew growing up, but not very American, very, um, there were no American families either. And I just feel like thinking about it now, my parents were very reserved and conservative and they just wanted to keep to themselves and not cause any trouble. So there wasn't very much branching out to kind of get to know the people, but somehow the American culture was some still instilled into us. And I don't know if it was because of television or um, just my parents talking to people at work but we did some things that were very American. I mean, I remember going to Big Bear Mountain and sledding down the snow with like a top of our big garbage can that we turned into a sled. Um, I remember them taking us to theme parks and going to, you know, Disneyland for the first time when I was a, a, like 12. 
small things like that, that I think back, why, why did they ever do that? And how do they even know to do that? Because we just weren't really exposed. And I lived a very sheltered childhood to where I think American culture was via TV and what our children, what the children would bring back from school as far as stuff. But the funny story about that is that all the neighbors in the, the neighborhood didn't know that us kids lived there because we were never allowed to go out and play in the front yard or in the neighborhood. So, I mean, there's a funny story about this. There was a time where I came out, saw people, and I think they asked me how long I lived there. And I said, my whole life. And they were shocked. I mean, their jaw was on the ground because they had lived there their whole life and they just never saw me um, because I didn't start hanging out in the neighborhood until I was about 13 or 14. Oh my God. Yeah. So people didn't even know I existed. That's so bizarre. Yeah. It was, I was, it was sheltered. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to jump back just a little bit when you said that your first dance class was at community college. Yeah. So like 18, 19 years old. I had just turned 18. And then your career became that of a professional dancer. Yeah. If you listen or read anything, people are like, oh, I started when I was three, I started when I was four. Or you might hear somebody say, oh, I was really late. I was nine. Yeah. But you were 18 or 19. I was 18. Wow. Yeah. So it happened really fast because once when I shifted my focus to dance from classical piano, I didn't know what I wanted to make of it. But what I did know was that I was a late bloomer, clearly. So I had a lot to learn. And, you know, I think I thrive myself on learning quickly in general, especially if it's something that I find that I really like. That's when I can learn very quickly for sure. And so I just absorbed it like a sponge as much as I could. But it was the middle of my second semester. Sue Gilson was my dance teacher over there at Palomar College. And she had said, look, there's an audition in Los Angeles, in like North Hollywood, for a cruise ship company called Gene and Ryan Productions. And she said, I think you should go. So maybe you and your friend Josh, you should go because I think you need to know what it's like to be in the dance world and in the entertainment industry because it's pretty cutthroat. Like, you know, things happen on the spot. Sometimes it's not about talent, it's about how you look. Sometimes it's about height. It could be all kinds of things, but it can be also very uh, brutal. So if you want to be in this industry, you have to go audition to see if this is something you want to do. So I said, okay, good idea. Didn't know what a headshot was, how to get one of those. I think I went to like some photo portrait place in the mall um, <laughs> and clearly didn't have a resume or CV because I didn't do anything. You know, I was only 18. I didn't do anything when I was younger as far as dance was concerned. So it was kind of weird to even construct that. I don't even know what it looked like back then. Printed on perforated paper for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so I went and when I went, I didn't know what to expect. So I just was to myself and just observed open ears, open eyes, went in there and did put my best foot forward and did my best. And I remember getting called back in the dance portion and then called back to sing and then called back, I think a third time to do other things, maybe another dance combo. I can't really remember that clearly. And I, I remember tumbling as well because they wanted to see if anyone had acrobatic experience. And then I just remember Jean Ann herself, um, when it came down to like a, a small group of people, asked me in front of the entire panel, uh, do you have a passport? And I said, uh, no, I have actually never left the country. And so she proceeded to say or ask, how fast can you get a passport? 
And so my response was, I actually don't know. How fast can you get a passport? <laughs> and so she kind of chuckled and, and said, look, we're interested in you. Um, there's something that we think you might be appropriate for. So go ahead and get a passport and we'll be in touch soon. And so I left and, and I got into the car and made that two and a half hour journey back home. And in the car, I just could not stop thinking about it because I had no idea what just happened. Did I get a job? They're that interested in me, but if they want me to get a passport, does that mean something good? That means something good, right? Like I, okay, so I expedited it in Los Angeles. I got it. And then I think two weeks later, I got a phone call. It was on an answering machine. So I called back with such excitement and they wanted me to go on this cruise ship as a dancer with acrobatic skill and that I would be touring a little bit of Caribbean and doing like three and a half months in Europe. And so I went back to Sue Gilson and I was like, oh my gosh, I've only been dancing with you for a year. I went to that audition you told me to and I got a job. Should I, what should I do? And she was like, take it. <laughs> this is an opportunity. And now if you take it, you will understand what it's like in this sector of the dance world. And then you can still have that experience to figure out if this is still what you want to do. This should be something that you embark on to figure it out. And I was worried because I was like, I've only been dancing for nine months. Like, I just feel like I, I'm not good enough. She was like, but you got the job. So clearly you are. So take it. And so I did. And, and the hard part about that time was that the time that I would have to leave was right before my older sister, Carolyn, was going to get married. And so before I even said yes, I told her about the job and I was told her that I was torn because, you know, everything in my life at that point had said, go for it. Take it. This is your time to flee. Escape all of this pressure of trying to be an engineer and a doctor. Do your thing because you found a new love and explore on your own and travel the world. And so, but I was nervous because I thought, okay, if my, if my sister wants me to go to the wedding, family is first, I'm going to go to the wedding. And she was so unbelievably generous and gracious and said, this is something that you want to do. And I, I know that this brings you the most excitement I've seen in you in such a long time that I feel like this opportunity might not present itself again. So you should go. And in saying that, I almost said, no, I, no, I'm not going to go. Like I can't. Because I couldn't believe that she would allow me to do that. And um, I was so moved and so touched at the time that, okay, so I came around to the idea. So I, I said, yes, signed the contract and I was about ready to leave. And that was the first time I ever composed a song. Um, and I, I did it because I felt so incredibly guilty of not being able to be there that I thought, what could I do to be there in spirit? And so I wrote a song voice, lyrics, and piano. And they played it during the wedding, during the, the candle ceremony where they united both candles into one and they played the song that I wrote. So I was there in spirit, but that was the first time I ever composed a song. And it was only because there was so much inspiration of this amazing act of Carolyn letting me go. Yeah, so I left. They played the song and I explored Europe and it was, that was the beginning. What was it like getting on the plane for the first time? It was everything that I think people would expect as far as um, excitement. I think there was a huge, huge amount of adrenaline. But on the other side, there was a huge amount of apprehension because I had no idea what, what I was walking into. At that point in my quote unquote dance experience, all I had were the, the walls of this massive dance studio 
and the knowledge that I had attained from the teachers around me, not just the teachers, but the dancers around me that have been doing this like through, all through childhood. And so since I didn't really know what to expect, I, I just was that really timid, quiet kind of person because I just wanted to be the best that I could be. Um, knowing that I had excelled in piano and I thought, okay, well, maybe I could excel in this. So here goes nothing. And to be in an environment with, you know, 18 or 16 or 17 other strangers in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, all putting on a show with singers and dancers and adagio couples and ballroom couples and gymnasts, you know, yeah, I was scared because I thought still, I still didn't even know that this was real because I didn't think I was good enough, even though I signed the contract and they were putting me on a plane, I still thought in my mind, I'm going to show up, we're going to have a day of rehearsal, and I'm going to get fired because they're going to see me as an imposter because I had not danced for like 12 years. I had been dancing for less than a year. And I just thought, this is fake. Like, this is not really happening. So yeah, I was pretty terrified. Did you come up against anything, like any new terminology or any new uh, dance moves or anything in those first kind of few weeks of formation that like how did you navigate those moments well I think the good thing about doing theater in high school is that I learned all of theater things about stage and how things worked and I was in performances so that that already made sense to me with the dance knowledge that I had with ballet and jazz I think as far as terminology I was fine but it was being exposed to other things that I didn't really know I mean yes I've worked with singers when I was younger because I accompanied them but for them to be a professional singer in this kind of production and what that meant, uh, knowing that this production was also very specific in, in, in how it was constructed. But also seeing how things were staged and how people were featured for the concept of the show was interesting because at that point I had either only done a musical with a clear plot and a clear storyline, or I've done a dance performance with the college. So. I think it was trying to just navigate what that meant with balancing those music rehearsals and staging and all the, the expectations of remembering things very quickly because we had a week to learn, not even a week. I think we learned a show in five days and we did three different shows. So then you would rehearse it in full towards the end of the week and then present it. So it was a lot of fast paced learning. And I think that was the biggest learning curve for me that you just needed to retain and, and, and be able to deliver which we, you do that in auditions, but when you're learning a 45 minute show and as a dancer, you're in like 37 of those minutes because we're on stage all the time. You know, that was a lot to take in. So coming to the end of that contract, what was the plan? Wow, I mean, the plan, the plan was nondescript really. <laughs> and I think it's because while being on that ship, it was the first time in my life where I felt I could be myself. And I'm sure people have heard stories like this many times, but growing up in the childhood that I had, especially in an environment where performing arts is kind of looked down upon, not being understood um, by my parents as far as what it is that I like resonated with, I just felt like an outsider, even though there were people around me that were also in the same thing, as far as the dancers that were in the same classes, the, you know, the people that I performed with in high school. And I, I think in doing this contract, I finally felt that I could be myself because I was surrounded by all this, these different people from around the country and around the world that had similar passions to me for the greater good of putting on a show and, and, and knowing what that meant. And because of that is when I realized, oh, 
I think I'm a flaming homosexual. Like, <laughs> I, I, I found, finally understood who it is I was and what it is that I wanted out of life. Mm-hmm. And so in coming back from that contract, I think that focus from a career shifted to, I need to live truthfully in my own skin. And how, what does that mean? And how, how do I go about that? You know, and this was still, what, 2002 when it came back? So navigating those waters was really tricky. And of course, similar cliche stories. You know, you come out to some of your closest friends at the time and if the natural reaction was, duh, Johnny, we already knew. <laughs> um, you know, which at the time I was like, yay. But, you know, and looking back, it was like, wow, everyone already labeled me before I even understood it myself. Slash, how come nobody told me? Geez, let me in on the secret. Hello. Um, you know, and so it was a time of discovery. Um, I had met somebody on the cruise ship had a relationship with him and decided to follow him. And this is where my life kind of took a small detour for a moment because I didn't really know. You know, when you find yourself in this way and you get into a relationship, it seems like you've got it all made and all done and you found love and this was it. And and so my, my focus was all kinds of weird because I followed him and I surrendered who I was at that time to be a part of this equation. And in doing so, you know, I moved to Michigan, went to school, back to school. You know, I had a scholarship at the Studio One School of Dance in Ann Arbor because I was one of the few males that were dancing in that area. And so I was able to study there for free. So I would take dance classes all the time. I would travel to Ann Arbor. And then I went to community college to try and finish my associate's degree to finish school. But then I went back on a cruise ship because they needed somebody and I had, I finished a full year of community college from that point on as well. And I was very close to getting my AA degree. And, and, and going back on that cruise ship, I realized, wait a minute, I still want to dance. I still want to be on stage and I still want to perform. And I don't want to be on cruise ships forever, but like I have a whole life ahead of me. I was only 20 when I went back on that second ship. And that's when, you know, finally my life took a path where I knew what it is that I wanted to do. And I knew that being in a relationship that was going to hold me back was not in in my line of focus. Not saying that you can't have a long distance relationship, but based on how invested those things were, I knew that I needed to break free just to do what I wanted to do, knowing that I had the rest of my life to find somebody. Yeah, sure. Was he a performer? No. Okay. (laughs) He was the company manager. Oh, Johnny. (laughs) So there was a massive age gap there too. I mean, I clearly my life was full out. Like it was just all the new things. Let's do it. Ah, Stupid. (laughs) But hey, life lessons. And it, it, it taught me a lot about myself and man I grew up as an adult quite fast from that experience because it had a lot of um, bad memories associated with it but also some good ones so yeah so the career path was interesting because I felt like since my education in dance was so limited it was the nine months prior to my first contract it was learning from everyone in those six months there and I was absorbing it as much as I could and then doing a full year in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the studio and being a part of that nonprofit dance company there called um, Dance Ensemble of Michigan, I knew that I had a lot of work cut out for me because yes, going back on a ship meant I still was employed and I was still in the entertainment industry, but to branch out, I knew I needed more. So I found myself doing a lot of trade. And, and what that means is like, I would accompany the singers on that contract 
so they could give me some voice lessons, you know, as we work on their repertoire. Or, you know, I had some uh, other fellow dancers that could see potential in me and wanted to help me. And so, you know, one of my good friends, Kimo, he, I remember teaching me a lot of things he learned at Alvin Ailey when he was in the second company of what it was like to perform ballet passages to make it look like you trained at a ballet company as opposed to a dance studio, but also how to present yourself as a male and not as a female. And it's, it's nothing against female ballet teachers, but you, you tend to have more of that nuance if you train from them. And so to be able to have kind of a mentor and a peer and a colleague at the same time and a best friend at the time teach you some of those things, it was really, really beneficial because then you could walk into an audition and present yourself in a better light because you've learned more, you have better technique, or you present yourself better to where you can be seen. Um, and I had friends teach me tap in like a stairwell in the cruise ship. Like there was so much to be learned. And so I used these jobs as well to perform my heart out and enjoy and, and travel the world. But I also knew that I had to learn as much as I could to be able to survive mm. in this industry. Yeah, it is crazy. Just like when you think about that, how much you were absorbing from all of those different sources all the time. Yeah. And that's something I've noticed about you when you're working is you're constantly like you still have that uh, curiosity to you. Like you yeah. always asking questions and wanting to know more. Yeah. Like it's never seemed to have left you. Um, so skipping forward a little bit like this is just trying to understand your background from the cruise ships you went to where did you end up in Singapore after that I was on and off ships for a, a couple years and then where did I go from there? oh no I moved to Las Vegas ah yes because at the time that was when Franco Dragone had split from Cirque du Soleil to create his own company. And while I was one on one of those cruise ships with Gina and Ryan Productions, my friend Nathan Blair had gifted me a DVD of Franco Dragone's A New Day that he created for Celine Dion. And I was so inspired by it. And it was very dance-based, but the, the artistic qualities and the, the dark mystery and, and the beauty of what Franco did for Celine Dion was so intriguing to me that I played that DVD almost every day. I think I played that DVD almost every day, but I also played um, Fosse. I loved Fosse on Broadway, that whole entire show. And, and we had some Fosse bits in our show as well. So that was really inspiring to watch. So I watched those things on repeat. So I was, I was kind of obsessed, I would say, with Franco's work knowing that he created some of those other shows. And because I had seen Mystere and O and Dralion at that time, I knew of the work and I saw what was happening. And I immediately just had this goal of, you know what? I've been dancing, but now I kind of want to get into La Rev. And that's when he had created La Rev at the Win. And so I, I moved to Vegas specifically to try and get into that show. And, you know, I had a quite good audition, but I got cut towards the end of the day, but I, I went through quite a bit and I had no idea what a circus audition was going to be like and how physical it was going to be because this was a, a sector of entertainment that I was not aware of at all. And since I didn't get that job, it was fine. I also auditioned for Les Folies Bergères, which was like the oldest um, running Las Vegas production show in, in Vegas at the Tropicana with showgirls and, you know, like uh, being topless in the second show. And it was it was an iconic show. And I was just curious to see where I would fare. And after auditioning, I got a job to be an on-call artist where they would just call you if they needed you. 
um, but that slowly turned into an actual contract to be um, an acrobat dancer. And I say acrobat because you had to tumble in in the can-can scene at the end. So I got that job. And of course, when I when I invited my family to come watch, of course, we I invited them to the first show because I didn't want my parents to think, oh, now look, my son's a dancer and he's dancing with half-naked ladies on stage. This is his life. I'm so ashamed. So they came to the first show, of course. <laughs> But from there, being in Vegas and being around a lot of circus because of Cirque du Soleil and, and Franco's productions there is when a good friend of mine at the time that was dancing with me at Follies was going to audition for a show called Cirque de la Mer in SeaWorld San Diego. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. San Diego is where I'm from. Like, how do I not know about this show? But it's because it was at a theme park, but also more circus than dance by you know by far and he asked me if i wanted to audition just to be of like moral support so i had gone we went to the audition i did not go there expecting a job but i was curious and so knowing what a larev and or a cirque audition was like i was physically prepared um i could still tumble there was a dance portion there was improv there was an interview section and before i knew it i was offered a job and so that's what's kind of catapulted me into the circus arts route and once again I was I was left with all this apprehension because I was hired with no circus background I just had acrobatic ability just because I could tumble with that kind of air awareness so I was taught Chinese poles and flying trapeze with dismounts into the water while I was on the job like I walked in day one and was like here we go and they, they coached me and taught me within like a month and we opened the show and here I am now a circus acrobat and that's what kind of now drove it into a different lane so yeah that was kind of a turning point for me I would say wow so now jumping forward because you've been in circus pretty much since then but then in, when was, was it 2013 or 2014, you moved from being a performer at House of Dancing Water into being artistic coordinator, which is an offstage role. I would say it was probably the tail end of 2014, if I remember okay. correctly. And I think that happened, um, you know, when, when I got that role, there was a part of me, I think anytime I progressed, the, the natural theme for me was apprehension because I just felt like even though it was shown in front of me that I was appropriate for the role, I just, it was almost too good to be true. Like I never really believed that I was worthy of any of these things. And I still feel that now, which is weird. It's hard. And I think it's because with the level of expectation I grew up with, I just felt like I was never good enough. So, but I think I kind of fell into that role because of all the things I've done prior. So I was a I was a dance captain on the cruise ships. I was, um, uh, what, what did they call it? At Cirque du la Mer, it was like a show captain or a show lead is what they called it. Um, when I tore my ACL in 2009, I was uh, the assistant cast manager. So I was really honored to, to have stepped into that role slash acrobatic coach because I was teaching all the people that were similar to me that had never done some of these apparatus before. When I moved from there to Singapore in 2010 to be a part of a production called Voyage de la Vie, it was, it was one of those productions that was trying to marriage circus with musical theater. And this was pre-Pippin. I was a show captain there, co-show captain there with my best friend in the entire world, Gemma Simcock. And so then going into Macau, I had had all these leadership roles, not by asking, 
it just kind of fell into my lap because they always selected me as the appropriate one and I was up to the challenge from the beginning. But based on all the different things that I had done, I would learned so much about what it was like to be a leader. And I've made many mistakes back then and still some mistakes now. But you, you take away all the good bits and all the things that you learn and, and you kind of move that into your next gig even if you're just a performer, just to, you know, have that conduct of professionality and, and just how you want to be. And that leadership role then took me into, you know, the House of Dancing Water, where when they offered me to be choreography captain, once again, I was so terrified because at that point, you know, my, my gears had shifted from trying to be on Broadway to trying to be in a Franco Dragon production or Cirque du Soleil production because that's what I fell in love with at that time and still love. And so here I was in a Franco Dragon production. I got my dream job. I'm in a cast of originals when I first started. So it was everyone that had endured like two and a half years of crazy creation. And I had so much respect for them. And then not even a year into my first year, they had already asked me if I wanted to be a choreography captain, knowing that that meant I was going to be in charge choreography wise and a leader for 90 artists which most of them were from creation so it was like who is this guy and why do we have to listen to him so i just felt you know really nervous and it was fine in the end at that point i had taken with me as much as i could from what i learned before but this was such a new realm for me that i trusted of just being myself and putting my best foot forward and hoping that that would be enough slash I would still learn along the way of what it would be like to be a captain on a big production scale as this. And then that progressed into artistic coordination of the cast changeover. So there was a couple summers that I went to Belgium to do that training. But after my first one that I went to, then I was offered artistic coordination of operations. And that was another pivotal moment in my life because I had to really understand within me if this is something that I wanted to do, knowing that that meant I would be taking a step off the stage. And I never, ever wanted to be those jaded people that we we come across sometimes where they have taken a step off the stage, but are clearly unfinished and feel a bit resentful for the lack of accomplishing of goals or whatever that case may be. And so when they move over to non-performing roles, it ends up being such a weird tension because of the resentment. I and I didn't want to be that. So I had to, you know, dig deep. And at the time I was enduring quite a bit of hip pain because I had a hip injury, but I was rehabbed back into the show. And I knew I had small nagging things like my right ankle, my left shoulder, my left hip, you know, it's just my right knee from ACL surgery. I didn't want also my career to end in a way where I was just broken and that's how it was going to be. I wanted to end on a high. So there was a part of me that thought, this is my time. I think this is my time because if I still wanted to perform, I know I won't be jaded because I think the time of aerialist, acrobatic, Cirque style performance was going to come to an end because even though there were so many people that were older than me, older than me that were still doing it, I don't think I could have kept going with that and that there would still be an avenue of musical theater and Broadway and potentially acting or something. Like I had that in the back of my mind. So I thought, okay, let's give this a go. And going into artistic direction, I knew that I would know probably in the first three months if I made the right decision or not. And I allowed myself that kind of time. And I found a new passion of just being a part of somebody else's journey. And it's not that I have all the answers or all the knowledge when it comes to dance or singing or music or theater or, you know, Shakespeare or 
dramaturgy, any of that. But I knew enough and I knew my own artistic instinct and I knew that the talent pool that I was working with also had the same amount, if not more. That you could cultivate this energy and this artistic process to where you are a part of that process because you help draw that out. So you have ideas, they have ideas, and you collaborate in a way that creates an end solution from like one idea, but you filter through like a gazillion ideas to get there. And in being a part of that process, my new love from performance turned into being a part of behind the scenes. And nothing resentful about that, nothing jaded, because I truly did love it. I mean, I remember after that first cast changer, we're sitting in the audience and watching them perform everything that they had learned, transitioning from athlete into artist. And I just felt such a sense of pride and it was not for inauthentic applause because it wasn't for me. I didn't need that. They were getting that. And it's okay that they needed that because that's where they were in their life. But indirectly, that applause was also for me because I was a part of it. And, and even though I wasn't seeking for that applause, it felt nice to have some kind of small validation to know that the beauty and what it is that we do, I was still a part of it. I'm still in entertainment. I still have a voice and I'm involved, I'm engaged, and this is now what I want to do. And that's where it took off from there. Oh, you became an artistic director with Cirque du Soleil. So you've been working on these big shows for a lot of your career. And in these choreography captains, dance captains, artistic coordinator, uh, artistic assistant, all the way up to artistic director. And these are other people's shows. So you're part of the process for an artist to integrate them into a show that exists. So for you, what is that creative process in terms of you, you get in a brand spanking new artist who doesn't know the show, doesn't know what they're supposed to do? I think there's a lot of kind of variables to this. To touch base very quickly, I think transitioning an athlete from this elite sport world into an artist is like the first step, if that's the process that we need to go through for that specific person. And that's just like a general knowledge and idea of what it's like to be a part of this kind of group with different disciplines, how what your contributions are and how they affect the production, the conduct that you have professionally within this kind of world with small things as far as understanding the stage, the backstage area, the people that are involved to help keep you safe. I mean, there's all those like logistics and technical things. Then of course, that transition from an from an athlete to an artist, that's probably the hardest work, but sometimes the easiest at the same time, because since it's such a blank canvas of just, well, you've never done this before, so let's play from the beginning. And and they're already so excited to be a part of a production like Cirque du Soleil. And they've already gone through perhaps some of that, the jus exercises that they've done in Montreal. So they're exposed to trying to be as vulnerable as possible. To, so to get that out of a person that's brand new to the production is always fun because, you know, it ends up being a little bit of partici participation on my part just to make it as comfortable and as open and trusting as possible to be able to let your guard down and feel what it is that you feel and, and, and finding that process together. Because yes, like you said, essentially these productions have already been set. And so you're bringing somebody into a puzzle that's already been created. And it's something very specific that they have to contribute to. But the fun part is to find their own voice and their own style in the constraints of the integrity of what was created 
to still give it life that feels good for them, you know, uh, because, okay, so we have these specific roles, you need to be this and you need to do that. But there's so much to play with to be able to interpret the concept, the message or the story, but also to amplify the performance and try and do things a bit differently to bring out the personality or the style of that specific person while still keeping the integrity of what was designed. Um, and that's always the fun part because I think it allows a new artist, so to speak, to let themselves explore a side of them that they've never really explored before. But it also helps me because it helps me explore something that I have never explored before because I may have my own preconceived notions of what I think this particular part of the show is supposed to be, whether it was the the knowledge and, and some of the things that I've read and videos that I've seen before I started the job, or of my own interpretations from my own first initial reaction. So then it becomes just this massive pot of like thoughts and ideas of how it can construct the narrative. And without getting too far off the beaten path, there's a lot to unpack and it becomes so fun. And then there's moments where we can try little things on stage once when they're integrated in to see if it feels cohesive, to see if it feels that it gets a different audience reaction or changes the flavor to where the narrative can be changed, but that means we need to tweak the before and after later on as well to make it make sense. And I think that creative process is fun because if we're both in it to win it and we're both new to it because we're being as clean as a slate as possible, then it's the true collaboration and no one feels bad about it. There are no wrong answers. We can just play until we find what we feel feels good and appropriate. And then still finding those limits of when to push, you know, because <laughs> that's always fun. Do you have a desire to create things from scratch? I do. And here's here's the weird thing about being in COVID times and in quarantine is that, you know, there are a lot that that allots for a lot of self-reflection. And unfortunately, I've had lots of inner fights with myself as far as where I stand within all of this, what it is that I want to do, but also being realistic about what my capabilities are. And it's it's become a very um, deep and meaningful and sad moment for me because I feel like I'm starting over of trying to find it, who I am and, and what my voice is because I've spent a lot of my performance career and then thereafter being a caretaker of the work of somebody else's genius. And there's there's a lot to be done to keep the integrity and to keep the operation of it flowing to hold on to that kind of production quality. There's also a, a matter of pushing the boundaries further to either enhance and not change so much, but to enhance to make things more current or relevant or relatable, whether it's to the audience or to the performer to help relay that to the audience. And, and you're a part of that, but essentially it is still the work of somebody else. And so I found in a lot of this self-reflection that I don't think I know if I have the creative chops to create my own stuff. I don't know if I'm actually talented enough to be creative because I'm so stuck in operations and, and it's something that I'm good at, but th there's a moment now where I feel that I don't know who I am and, and it's hard. It's, it's, it's really sad for me. Um, and have I had creative moments? Absolutely, hands down. But that still stems from a foundation and a structure of someone else's thought. And so even though my point of view and my perspective can veer off and expand or perhaps change a bit 
or enlighten in a different way. I know I can do that, I've done it before, but to sit down and create a concept or show from scratch is almost too intimidating now to where I don't know where to begin. And it's sad because I think I have a lot to offer. I think there's a lot of background to where I've come from that I could tap into, but I think COVID times has left me in a place where I'm in this neutrality kind of middle ground mode where I'm a bit lost. And I think it's also hard to swallow the idea of being lost when people have this expectation of, well, you're an artistic director of Cirque du Soleil, churn something out. What are you waiting for? This is your time. And once again, that expectation just has a little bit of PTSD to it for me where I just crumble because I feel like the fear takes over of a failure. And even though I've learned a lot in my life and I failed a lot to where that's what makes me better, there's something about this sector in my life where I just feel terrified. And I will admit that to the world now. <laughs> it's an absolutely terrifying time. I didn't have the same experience as you, but um, I was heavily discouraged from going into the arts as a career. Like I I know very few people who were encouraged to pursue it, but um, it was now being unable to work and being unable to, like I've applied for about a hundred jobs and I haven't even been called for an interview because my experience oh. doesn't suit what they're looking yeah. for. And it's that thing of feeling completely like there's no value and there's no worth to the skill and experience that you have. And it's horrific. Like, it's absolutely horrible. And yeah. yeah, there's this expectation that, well, you've held this position. Why are you not doing something? It's like, no one can do anything. Yeah. And, you know, there's a lot of people, friends of mine, peers, colleagues that have mentioned that I have a lot of transferable skills, mm -hmm. which I do. As far as managing people, I think being any kind of manager is something that I can do because that's what we do on a daily basis. Yes, we're an artistic director, but in essence, we manage this collective group of misfits in a way because everyone is so different. Everyone comes from such different backgrounds and, and times of their lives, whether it's sport or family circus or poverty or wealth, um, opportunity, lack thereof. I mean, there's so many things to unpack when you get to know a person that managing them is a huge skill. But people don't see that because in most jobs that are not in the entertainment field, they see things on paper. So if I were to, let's say, and this is, okay, me assuming, and I don't want to do that, but let's be real here. If I were to apply, let's say, for a manager position at Target, can I manage people? Yes. Do I know any of their systems? No. Would they be interested? Maybe. But they're, they're not, for the most part, I'm not going to be on the top of their list when there's going to be other people that are qualified because they have that kind of corporate retail experience, big box stores, or they have other people that are moving up the ramps, ranks within the same company, but maybe from a different city, or they view the arts as, well, he's only going to apply for this job until he gets his next artistic gig and he's going to drop us like a fly. And let's be honest, there's a bit of truth to that. So there's a lot of things that I think people forget when it comes to how we look on paper. Yeah. And this is also aside from anything that could potentially be out there too, like racial profiling because of your name or, or any of those things, right? So it's a, there's a lot involved when it comes to applying for a thing. And it's, it's discouraging, yeah. 
Yeah. There was a job advertised recent, uh, not recently, uh, it was a while ago, but it was a manager position and they were looking for somebody who could manage four teams that had specific skill sets, like okay. all different sil- skills, skill sets. You had to manage the daily workload, um, like you had to assign the daily workload. Then you had to be able to react to emergencies and redistribute workload based on those emergencies and I was, and also forward planning for bigger longer term things and I was like that sounds like what we do yeah I was like <laughs> you're describing an artistic director in a large company yeah and yeah it was just a straight up no like you're yeah. not qualified to do this which is hard because you know you end up being that person that's like well if you just got to know me you would understand. And that's a really weird position to be in yeah. again. And I say again, because I just feel like that's something that we did when we were beginning our careers, you know, of trying to, to showcase that you have something to offer if you just take a chance on me. Yeah. And now we're waiting for those handouts of chances, you know, and they're, they're few and far between. So the struggle yeah. is real. <laughs> And things are opening up a little in America, like Vegas is starting to open the beginning of November. Is that right? Yeah, which I mean, we'll see how that rolls. I think a lot of people have different opinions on it. I think it is a good sign. Do I think it's too soon? Potentially. And I might I might be criticized for that comment. But, you know, if we look at the graphs as far as infection rates and hospitalizations and things like that, it's not like we've gotten it down to zero. It's still pretty grim. And with everyone saying things of how it will potentially get worse because the weather is getting colder and people are going to be congregating more so inside and restrictions are getting lifted. So people are being a little bit more liberal. It it could all turn sour, but I'm hopeful that it potentially won't based on the creativity of things that people are doing. You know, I think I think my friend Tom here has read an article saying something about the Jabberwockies performing in the MGM arena um, because that's one where they could make sure that people could be spaced out. And I might be getting that wrong, but there's a show that's going to go into an arena that's not an arena show, Mm -hmm. but just so they can abide by this rule in the mandate that this the artist on stage needs to be 25 feet away from the first audience member. Wow. And there's a lot of these small shows that can't necessarily do that. So they're they're doing their best to be creative. And some of it is to change venues completely. And because all these venues are empty and they're owned by these casinos, you know, they're going to make it work um, to be able to try and have this work safely. And I think that's a big leap of hope for all of us because it sounds like it may work. And if it does, man, it, it'll be the, the face of how we change entertainment for the future. But at least in the interim, it just gives us hope that things could slowly get back to normal sometime, sometime. <laughs> and um, have you been involved in any projects or have you just kind of shut yourself away from it? I have not been involved in any projects and I just, I'm okay to not at this point in time. I kind of want to see how things roll, but I'm also, I'm just not that person that hustles anymore. If it's something that's an opportunity and I know about it and I want to apply by all means, but I'm also not that person to push my way through. And maybe I should, but I'm not saying that I need things to just happen and fall in my lap. But I I think that since I'm not clear on myself and there's not a lot of clarity, I don't want to be someone that pushes through the industry to try and get a job when I'm not being 100% my best self. And that's just to be 
respectful of the craft of our industry. I don't want to try and do something that is outside of my wheelhouse. Although I think I will accept a challenge, I have to be particular, but it's not like there's a lot of opportunity in front of me either. So it's another peculiar situation where I find myself navigating foreign waters and even though everyone else is doing it, I have to be honest that maybe I'm not navigating it as well. But I'm okay with that because I'm still searching and in soul searching, I'm just being one with nature and enjoying my time being with loved ones and remembering the foundation of what really matters in my life. And that's the people that are around me that I love that still support me and are just kind enough to know that it's a rough time, but also generous enough to offer anything that it is they want to offer as far as words of wisdom, advice, or anything encouraging. And, and you know, that's all I need at this point in time is encouragement that things will be better because it will be as lost as I am. But it's okay. I can be a lost boy for a little bit. It's fine. Of course you can. Um. In your lostness, though, is there any routines that you're trying to maintain or is it really completely waking up and not knowing? Because I know you're a planner. I know you like to organize and set small goals. So is that something that you're continuing to do? Um, I've been really focused on my own personal fitness journey. And as typical as that sounds for a quarantine time, I think it's really, really helping me find a nice comfortable space in my mind and my body um, because it makes me feel good. And the, the thing about that is that once when I moved over to artistic direction back in 2014, so that's six years now, I have never had a clear routine and time allotted for my own personal fitness journey. And when you spend a lot of your performance career training and working out and doing all this stuff and getting paid for it, you know, it becomes so innately a part of you so that when it gets cut off abruptly and for such a long period of time, it's it's difficult to get back into. But once when I started getting back into it, I realized how much I actually need that for myself. And it's not about aesthetics anymore. And it's not about trying to get back into performing. It's not any of that. It's for me, it's about feeling good and feeling healthy. And that has been really helpful in my own journey because I feel like when I feel good, I do feel like I have more ideas. I do feel like I'm more creative. I do feel like I have more aspirations. And so fo me focusing on my own fitness has led to some ideas that I haven't necessarily banked on, but they're on my in my notebooks of how I want to expand from there. Even if it goes nowhere, it's a personal project for myself that would make me feel good. I'm actually, believe it or not, I'm working on, um, I think it's pronounced Leibestrom. It's a classical piano piece by Franz Litz, and I used to play that when I was a kid. And it's a difficult piece, and I'm taking it up again to see if I can relearn how to play it. And as much as muscle memory is there, it is also not, because there is you know, a lot of technique and uh, accuracy involved in playing a, a difficult piece like that. So that's been a side project for me as well. What do I want to do with that? I don't know. I just wanted to do it for myself. It's not to like, okay, would I publish it on YouTube when I'm done? If it's good enough, maybe. If it's not good enough, maybe. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what do I get out of it? I don't know, but it doesn't matter. Um, because if that stems into something else, that stems into something else, who knows? Maybe that whole muddy, unclear, lost moment in my life will become more clear and less gray. And I'm, I'm okay with that because that's part of the journey too, right? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. 
You learned how to Rubik's Cube as well. Yeah, that was at the very beginning. What's funny is that I, I feel like I can expand on that to learn better techniques to do it and skip steps and, and understand it more in that mathematical way. But I just can't be bothered because it's one of those where it's like, I find it's quite impressive that you can do it already. And if you can, great. So move on. Next. <laughs> like, I think it's super impressive, but I have no patience to sit and learn how to do that. To be honest, Aoife, it's not that hard. If you can understand <laughs> a structure of an algorithm as like a pattern, like a dance passage or a musical phrase, and you just have to execute it the same yeah. based on what's in front of you, and you go through those seven or eight steps... Boom, you're done. It, so it ends up just being memorizing patterns and algorithms. So once, if you can do that, that's fine. It's like playing memory or learning your lines off a of monologue. It just takes a little bit more, a different kind of focus. That's all, for sure. At least it's colorful. <laughs> it's pretty. <laughs> it's pretty. Yeah. So I don't want to stop talking to you, but no. I kind of, like, I want to dig into this, but I also don't want to upset you. No, dig into whatever you want. That's fine. This moment is just a really unprecedented, horrible moment. And yeah. I feel like our careers are in such a niche that, yeah, like even here, like at home, I'm not part of this community anymore. So when things are opening back up, it's the people who are part of the community that are getting the work. Correct. Yeah. So the doors are kind of still closed, even as things start to open a little. Mm -hmm. I'm exactly in the same position. I feel completely lost. And I feel that the only thing that I can do is go back to creating, which I, I was only at the beginning of developing that skill. Yeah. Do you know, like, so I'm yeah. going back to the very beginning because I think all of that is gone, the little bit yeah. that I'd learned. So yeah, so it's a really, like, I don't know, really depressing. Yeah. Because even pre-COVID times, when we were still working for Cirque, I mean, I'm not sure how, like, public knowledge it was, but I'm, I'm pretty sure I was quite vocal about it, but I was still keen on being a part of new productions. Like, mm -hmm. I, I remember telling Allison that I really wanted to be a part of a creation, and as much as people uh, didn't understand my, my desire for that after doing one already with Volta as the assistant artistic director, I needed it for myself to be able to be a part of the beginning stages again. So even though it's still somebody else's vision, you have more opportunity there to flex your creative muscle and your artistic sensibilities to be able to help create and mold and structure and, and move along and evolve a production that's slowly on its feet. You know, in that first year, there's always a lot of adaptable change. And I think, I wanted that more because I was like you in the beginning of my creative processes to understand what that was like. And I think the only way to do it is to continue doing what you do creatively to find that voice or to find your process or to find what it is that it, you need to, to be fully open to your own capabilities and creativity to make things. And, and then this happened, you know, you know, I was just pushing for that opportunity and now there's none. And so, yeah, we're at kind of at a little standstill and it's, it's just, I can't describe it any other way except for just difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Sucks, Johnny. <laughs> yeah. And do you know what's funny? That's not funny at the same time is that 
I have now looped around in a circle where my mom is like, well, now is the time to probably change your career. Did you think about maybe working in a corporation because you would be good with blah, blah, blah. And I, I just feel like I'm back at the beginning. So yeah. when I mentioned before about the PTSD, it's, it's happening again because I feel like there's now this expectation that I need to jump ship, do something else, but then it's like finding something that I need to commit to financially to study if I need to or go back to school or, or whatever um, and or commit knowing that if this is a career path, I'm not going to do this lightly. I have yeah. to do it with full force and making that decision is nowhere near as easy as everyone expects it to be. I don't know any other career that people would would be so quick to tell you to change. Like, I feel that the arts is the only career that people treat as a hobby. Yeah, and unfortunately. It's, yeah, and it is it is that thing. It's like, oh, well, that stopped. So what are you going to do? And it's like, yeah. well, I'm, I'm going to do this. This is my career. This is my yeah. life. Yeah. And yeah, it, I totally empathize with that because, yeah. yeah, like even the jobs that I applied for here were just to get some money until things opened up again. They were never going to be a new career. But it also comes back to the foundation and the constructs of what the cultural shift should be because I, and I feel like it, it can happen with the new generation of, of kids um, because, you know, it's not just because of what we grew up with. Oh, it is, but it's still a cultural thing in the world where success is still coinciding with wealth and money. Mm -hmm. And, and they forget that there has to be a level of joy and passion or at, at l the least, like some kind of happiness in what you do to be able to continue doing that, but also to be good at what you're doing. Because that's the whole point. If you love something enough and you want to do it for the rest of your life, you're going to try and be your best at it because this is what you want to do. And that's what creates great people. So the best doctors out there is because they do love to help people, to find cures, to be scientists, to treat. I mean, that's their passion and their focus. So I think people forget that. Like the reason why we want to do this is because we're passionate about it. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that people aren't passionate about being a carpenter or being a plumber, but there are a lot of people that are stuck in this uh, middle-class route of, well, I need to do this to survive and I need to do this to support my family, so I'm gonna do this. And I know this because my parents were that. Mm -hmm. And it, that's fine too. But at the end of the day, when what you know for sure is what you want to do and it brings great joy and you wanna stick to it and you're defiantly putting your foot down, that is, there's something to be said about that because I think everyone should be in a job that they love this much. The world would be so much greater. And everyone has love for different things. And that's the beauty of it. So why is it that our industry is so pooped on when it comes to us being so passionate about sharing art when it's consumed on the daily from everyone in the world? I mean, yeah. does that correlation not have any sense to anybody? Like, yeah. Yeah, it's absolutely crazy. People are starting to see it. So hopefully it changes. Yeah, I hope so. Like our government here has been pretty good we have a really good uh, agency advocating for the arts to government like lobbying the government so mm -hmm. in our budget recently the arts got a big extra bump um, yeah. of money which is great but just talking about that joy I was talking to a performance artist from Taiwan who mm -hmm. like his work is just incredible and we had a a FaceTime conversation about his work and he does these like long like one year minimum performance art pieces 
where he'll impose restrictions on himself and then he'll live by those rules for a year. But there was one that he did, which was 13 years. So, yeah, like he's dedicated. And um, he did one where one year he lived without shelter. So he lived outside and he was an undocumented immigrant in the US. So he was living like a homeless person, but he even refused to sleep under bridges, like any shelter that protected him from the elements. And then he said to me in his conversation, he was like, as a human, the only thing that we need is uh, food and water. Mm. And I was like, what? And he's like, everything else past that should only be for joy. Yes. And I was like, but, and he was like, no, 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 that's all you need. He's like, you want other things. He's like, what you need is those things. And it was just like, oh my God, our, our desire for a nice house or a a nice clothes or a nice car is a want. And we sacrifice our own joy for those material objects. Yeah. So, yeah. That was, yeah, that was a pretty cool conversation. Yeah. I mean, what a way to bring it back. I think we should remember that on the daily. Yeah. (laughs) Because then you don't really take anything for granted and you're always just uh, living a life of gratitude. And I think that's beautiful. So I will remember that. (laughs) Yeah. No, it really hit me. And then every day since then, I've been like, I don't need this. I want it. And do I want it enough to do this thing to get it? Do you know what's funny is that I, uh, in, in thinking about that, before COVID happened, I really wanted to sit down in one place. Mm-hmm. I love touring, don't get me wrong, but I kind of wanted to just have a home base. And I think I missed that. And I had that in Macau and then being on tour for three years, I think I was a little tired of it. But now my perspective has changed again. And it's because having a home base means like having a home and having things and having a... And it's, it's what everyone strives for. But at the end of the day, like, do I need that? I just want it, but I don't need it because what brings me joy right now is still pretending I'm on tour. So clearly I love traveling and it's because I love exploring new places, new people, new cultures, new climates, new foods, new all of that. And so now I've gone back into this idea of not only do I want the industry to come back in a safe way to where we all have jobs that we love again, but I... I miss being on tour and exploring different cities and different countries. So at least that has bled itself to the surface of how much it, it means to me to be, yeah, connected with the world. Um, yeah. And I, I, I find great joy in that. Yeah, we were talking, Mark and I were talking about this, and it's like all the things that you complained about on tour are so insignificant now. So insignificant. You would take them all back and be so happy for them. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when your Google photos show you like, on this day last year, it's like, oh my gosh, we did some fun things. Like, uh, that's incredible. I'm just kicking myself for all the days that I was too tired to leave my hotel room. Shame on you. I'm like, you idiot. (laughs) What were you doing? (laughs) I know, right? Oh, I miss that a lot. Travel is what um, kind of changed my relationship with my mother as well. Yeah. Um, Did I ever tell you that story about how I came to forgive her for not ever taking us to Vietnam? No. Well, it's because our whole lives uh, growing up, you know, my sisters and I were always told that we were going to 
go to Vietnam and that my my mom and dad were going to take us and show us where they came from. Um, and so we were, you know, excited about it. And it, it was started off as a once when everyone graduates high school, we'll all take a trip. And at this time, like all my aunts and uncles and even my grandparents have, have gone, if not once, multiple times. So our family in the family tree were the only ones that hadn't been. So once when Jen graduated high school, that turned into, well, now she's going to college, so we should wait until she's done with college. Okay, so we waited. And then she was done with college, and then it was, oh, well, we're, we just can't take time off of work, and we don't have the money for it, so maybe not just yet. And I remember calling my mom out and asking her, I said, look, do you really ever want to go to Vietnam? Because I feel like anytime we get to that moment where we should be, you put another roadblock in, and there's another obstacle to, to bypass as far as time. So do you actually want to go? And in the end, she admitted that it was no. And so she lied to us our whole, the, our whole lives um, because she actually never really wanted to go. So I, I had a moment of being really upset about that because I, I just felt like I was waiting. And, you know, a turning point for me there was understanding why. And my mom never, my mom and dad both never really talked about the war and what, how that was for them. And there was, over a period of time, there's lots of little stories, but, and you can piece them together somewhat, but... We never had like a true, honest conversation about the trauma that they endured or the experiences as a whole in coming here to the United States. Um, and to this day, even we're all grown ass adults and they still don't really talk about it. And it's sad because, you know, as you get older, the memory kind of goes away. And so there's only bits of stories and, and whatnot. So it wasn't until I did Miss Saigon in North Carolina in 2009. So I was still doing circus, but I was, you know, doing other things too. Like it was a period of time where I was doing all kinds of gigs. You know, I danced with Radio City Rockettes on tour and we also did Saigon. But when we did Saigon, we had staged it in the studio. And then once when we staged it on stage and we're at that scene where uh, Kim is trying to find Chris and the helicopter's there to take them all away because they, they need to retreat. And there's all these Vietnamese people on the ground that has paperwork or not. And they're trying to get on this American helicopter to escape communism in the country. And I was one of those Vietnamese people. And I remember doing that staging with the helicopter and the lights were on. And, you know, it just was such an intense moment that I felt what I believed was a small percentage of what my mom must have felt back during the war times. And I immediately started sobbing on stage. It was like a normal reaction to the situation and it was so authentic. And oddly enough, throughout our whole run of doing Miss Saigon, I was able to authentically get there again because it didn't take any effort on my part. I was just thinking now about my mom. And so we had a long conversation after I did that production about what I felt on stage and what I was trying to relate to of her experience and that I wanted to know more. But if she didn't want to tell me, I already was going to tell her that I forgave her for not ever wanting her to take us to Vietnam and that the resentment was going to be gone and I was going to stop being upset about it. And I was, and I let that go. And when I had that experience of going to Singapore is when I first had the opportunity to go to Vietnam. So my younger sister, Jen and I, we went together as siblings to, to have this kind of surreal moment of going back to where my parents were. And even though we wanted it to be with them, at this point, we knew that wasn't possible, so we went on our own. And it's because of my career and where it led me, it opened up that opportunity to change my life in that way, where we could experience it and understand where we come from and have this amazing resonant moment of stepping foot into Vietnam and feeling like it actually was home, even though we had never been there before. 
And that magic of travel in that moment has turned my sister into a travel junkie and aficionado as well. And she now wants to go wherever I am because it, it's always going to be somewhere new for her. And we, we make it a point to take a trip every year together, which this year was Utah and we went hiking. But <laughs> yeah, basically what I'm getting at is, yeah, there's a history of, of what that meant to me as far as my own family roots. But the travel aspect of it was always in me since I took that first cruise ship job in 2001. But in doing that trip with my sister, man, it's changed. And exponentially now I just want to explore everywhere in the world. Uh, so it's weird to even think that I wanted to settle down into a resident show because there are many pros to it about being close to family and having a home and being accessible. And, and that's all good. But I guess it's that realization now that I just want to be that traveling creative where if I were to die tomorrow, I know that I experienced and met so many incredible people along the way that has their part of humanity. And I, I got to be a part of it as well. And entertainment provides that in a way because music is universal, because theater and stories are universal, because somebody can relate to it. But also if it means that you can travel with your show or with that project, man, there's there's so much to to take on as far as creativity. But it's more so about the humanity of what we do in this art form. It's beautiful. Everyone has a story to tell. And now we're learning everyone's story. And I miss that so much. I'm, ah! <laughs> Oh, the other day I watched Hamilton um, oh, yeah. with my good friend Marshall, you know Marshall, and yeah. his sister Emily. And it, I just started crying all over again. And I saw that on Broadway three times to see my friend Robert Walters on it. And, and even seeing it a fourth time, like it's like I know where the emotional parts are going to be. And I know I'm probably going to get teary, but I just felt emotional the entire time because we were watching it on a big screen. And I felt like I was there and I forgot what it was like to be in live entertainment because it felt live to me even though it wasn't. And I just was fully consumed with all the emotions that come with it, of the stories that they were telling and just felt like I was one of them, that I was living his story and her story and their story. And then I felt like I was on stage dancing and enjoying <laughs> the lighting design and all this stuff. I mean, it was just so much like it just, and it's hard to know and comprehend that those feelings will not be understood by most people. Yeah. And that trying to articulate what that means to you as far as this brings me joy, this makes me happy, I am passionate about this. It's a feeling that it's indescribable. And that's also hard because you're trying to get people to understand and relate when they see our industry as a hobby, like you say. And if that makes us gushy, mushy, artistic -y, artistically like those type of people, then okay, so we are, but God damn it, at least we feel something. <laughs> but this is it, but like in our jobs, we have to be able to access these like very emotionally vulnerable states. And you can't do that and then be, I don't want to say touchy feely with people, but like we hug each other because we allow each other to get to those vulnerable states. So we feel a closeness that you don't you wouldn't necessarily feel with a work colleague who sits at the desk next to you. Yeah. So, yeah, it's like, yeah, I think there is an element of us being seen as overly emotional, but that's our job. Yeah, because if we don't tap into what it is to understand and or feel or empathize, then how do we tell stories? Mm -hmm. 
we can tell stories because they're factual, but there's, there's more to it than just telling a story. Yeah. And I think that's really important. And going back to like, you know, a previous interview where people talk about leadership's uh, style, you know, just humanity is always going to be my, my version of it as yeah. far as having that connectivity with people um, because you have to understand who they are and where they come from to, yeah, learn how to teach, learn how to, all those normal things. But deep down of who they are as a person can reflect and, and encourage and, and inspire what they create on stage or understanding who they are to be able to get the best out of them, you know? Yeah. Wow, we kind of talked about a span of things. We talked about loads of things. It's great. Yeah. I don't think I've talked about myself so much in such a long time. It's really bizarre because <laughs> we don't just go around talking about ourselves, but yeah, you've asked really fun questions. No, but I think sometimes when you end up in these positions, like the actual artistic director position, it's about the job and it's not about the person who got there, do you know? Because yeah. you're not born an artistic director. There's other things that have happened. But it's also like for me, it's just if any of these podcasts can do anything like offering a little bit of hope. And if somebody hears that, you know, you started dance at 18 years old and they're 16 and they think that there's no hope, that's an amazing little thing that can be taken from it. Yeah. You know, and For also sure. knowing that we all get really scared. <laughs> yes. And that we always don't have the answers and yeah. that's fine. Yeah. Um, but we will figure it out yeah. together. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's been quite um, therapeutic for me, actually. Yeah. Because I think with this entire conversation, what I can still come out with this is just complete gratitude for all the people in my life. Yeah. That helped shape me during all of those moments. Like every day, there's going to be something that helps shape me. And just in having these conversations from when I was a child up until now, there's so many moments where it's that reminder of, oh, yes, it was this person, this teacher, this group this circumstance, these things that help shape me into who I am today, yeah. which is so frou-frou and cliche to say, but it's the truth. Like, I think we have to remember sometimes where we've come from to help understand that we will be okay. We will find a way. We will still progress and we will still transcend. Yeah. It just doesn't seem super easy right now, but we will get there. Yeah. Absolutely. And it is. It's like when you look back over your career, you start, you see how it happened, but at the time, there's no there's no plan that you can follow. And I think this moment of COVID is exactly the same. It's going to be something random that leads to the next thing. Do you know? Yeah. yeah. And just understanding to trust that that's what's happened in the past. And that will be what continues to happen. You're not going to be unemployed in 20 years time. This yeah. will not continue this. What's that? This too shall pass. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Same along lines. Uh, my one of my favorite quotes is, "This is only temporary. Hmm, yep. This is not forever." Yeah, yeah. Everything yep. is temporary. Yep. So good. Okay, Mr. Kim, I am going to let you go. Okay. Well, thank you so much for letting me be your guest. It was an absolute honor. I loved it. I loved, love, love, love. So that was my conversation with Johnny. I hope you enjoyed it. And please follow Johnny on his social media to see everything that he gets up to. And make sure you check out any of the blogs or podcasts that you might have missed on this creative nomad. Have a wonderful holiday season, however you celebrate. And see you in 2021. 
This Creative Nomad is recorded and edited by myself, Aoife Carey, and the music, as always, is by Alan Hislop. <laughs>